A Chinese man and a Jewish man were eating lunch together one day. Suddenly, without warning, the Jewish man gets up, walks over to the Chinese fellow, and smashes him in the mouth, sending him sprawling to the floor. The Chinese man picks himself up, rubs his jaw, and asks, What in the world was that for? And the answer came back, For Pearl Harbor. His response is total astonishment. Pearl Harbor? I didn't have anything to do with Pearl Harbor. It was the Japanese that bombed Pearl Harbor. The Jewish man responded, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, they're all the same to me. With that, they both sit down again. And before too long, the Chinese man gets up, walks over to the Jewish man, and sends him flying to the floor with a hard slap to the jaw. The Jewish man yells out, What did you do that for? And the answer came back, The Titanic. The Titanic, the Jewish man asked. Why, I didn't have anything to do with the Titanic. Whereupon the Chinese man replied, Goldberg, Feinberg, Iceberg, they're all the same to me. We make assumptions without seemingly wanting to know the truth. When it comes to very familiar stories in the Bible, we also make the same assumptions about knowing the facts of the events, but never really looking at the biblical text to see what it has to say. And I found that there are a lot of inaccurate assumptions about the Bible, especially when it comes to the narratives about Jesus' birth and early childhood. These assumptions come when we get our Christmas story from the media versus the Bible. And anything that challenges our assumptions is disregarded because we like the sanitized version of the Christmas story, which makes us feel good instead of the way the Bible really presents the story as they unfold. While the Christmas story, according to the Bible, is really a, a wonderful story, it is set in a background of a very tumultuous time for all those involved. There was trouble and upheaval everywhere. In fact, it's very similar to what we are experiencing this year. It is in these difficult and troubled times that God's handprints are most clearly evident as He revealed Himself to the world, most evidently through His Son, Jesus, God Himself. As we end our mini-series entitled The COVID Christmas, Discovering Joy and Peace in Troubled Times, we will finish our study in Matthew's account of Jesus' birth and early childhood life. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 2, as we take a look at verses 12 to 23. Matthew, chapter 2, verses 12 to 23. Here in this passage, we want to learn three revelations of who God is and how He operates, especially when we go through troubled times. And these revelations about God and how He operates should give us joy and peace, even during very difficult times. Look with me at verse 12. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. If you remember the message last week, King Herod had asked the wise men from the east who had traveled very far to worship the child Jesus in a private meeting to tell him when they had found Jesus. Well, they found Jesus and perhaps were inclined to go back and report to Herod. But the Bible tells us they were warned in a dream by God not to return to Herod. And so the Bible tells us they went back to their country using another route. 
You see, God knew Herod's true evil motives for wanting to know the location of the child Jesus, and God was one step ahead thwarting his plans. Look at verse 13 with me. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When the wise men had left using another route, the Bible tells us that Joseph was warned by an angel that night of the wise men's visit that the child Jesus was not safe and that Herod would seek to kill him. They were to flee Egypt, a foreign land hundreds of miles away. Joseph and Mary had no idea about Herod's evil intent, but now with this news, their world had been shattered. News like this isn't very settling, nor will you have peace in your heart to know that there is a very powerful person in authority who wants to harm your family and to kill your child. Also, remember that Joseph was a carpenter by trade and wasn't the wealthiest of man. Traveling to live in a foreign country without friends and family to lean on and to establish a home in a foreign land is certainly unsettling. And they didn't even know the time period for how long they would be in Egypt. If a time period for you is unknown for where you will be, it will cause great anxiety because of the expenses that you would have to shell out, right? If you're going to travel somewhere, you need to know how long you're going to be gone so that you can save and pack and prepare and bring enough money. But notice the words of the angel, until I bring you word. So the mind of Joseph, could it be one week, one month, one year, 10 years? That would make anyone anxious and troubled. Where would they get money and resources? But wait, God brought wise men from the east hundreds of miles to Bethlehem to bring them money and resources the very night they were to flee to Egypt. You see, that's how God operates. God is visibly taking care of Jesus, His one and only Son, by giving Him and His earthly family enough provisions to flee to Egypt. Isn't that wonderful? God knew this family would need money that very night to survive in a foreign land. So one in two years beforehand, he caused the group of wealthy wise men from the east to see a star and be motivated to come and worship the newborn king and to bring gifts. You see here a truth about how God operates, number one. God's protection and provision often comes in unexpected and unconventional ways to reveal His deep love and care for us. God's protection and provision often comes in unexpected and unconventional ways to reveal His deep love and care for us. As many of you know, earlier this year, I was in the U.S. for a ministry trip, and because of COVID, that trip was extended by an extra month because of three flight cancellations. Cindy and I were worried because this unexpected trip extension wasn't budgeted in. And as our family began to pray about it, we saw God work in unique ways. In those unsettling times, God unexpectedly sent someone to take care of our housing needs. And then another person took care of our transportation needs. And still another to take care of our food needs. 
our children were able to see firsthand in those worrisome times that God is very much able to take care of His children. If it wasn't for those troubled times, then we wouldn't be able to see God's work so clearly and for the children to experience something like that left quite the impression on them seeing God's love and care for them through others. Look at verses 14 and 15. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there till the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. So Joseph and Mary and the child Jesus left Bethlehem that very night with provisions for the journey to their new home in Egypt until the threat was gone. The Bible tells us that this was the fulfillment of prophecy that the Messiah would come out of Egypt. So you may say, well, what's the big deal? The big deal is that there is no prophecy about the wise men coming, only a prophecy about Jesus' family and Jesus himself coming out of Egypt. I've often wondered two things. Why Joseph and Mary stayed in Bethlehem instead of quickly returning to Nazareth after the birth of Jesus and after the census. And why didn't God tell Joseph earlier to leave town and escape if you knew of Herod's insecure heart and his evil plans? Why did they have to escape in the middle of the night? Now, we don't know the circumstances that caused them to stay in Bethlehem, but I believe that it was so that the wise men could easily find them and give them enough resources to escape to Egypt. Bethlehem is only a few miles away from Jerusalem, while Nazareth was much further away from Jerusalem. So the wise men were able to quickly find them and give them the provisions they needed to survive in Egypt. And why didn't God tell Joseph to leave earlier? Because God needed him and his family to stay put until the wise men arrived and they left that very night once they received the gifts. My point is that Joseph and Mary knew nothing about the coming of the wise men. It was not prophesied. But God was already orchestrating everything to work perfectly to show His love and care through His protection and His provisions. And that should give us a sense of peace and even joy during these troubled times, knowing that God is very much at work in unconventional and unexpected ways in your life and in mine. How exciting that is even if we may not fully understand or realize what he is doing. Look at verses 16 to 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Tragically, Herod massacred all those who were two years and younger in Bethlehem and the surrounding regions. We're not sure how many babies were killed but suffice to say, there were many. Mary and Joseph knew nothing of the extent by which Herod would go and seek out and kill Jesus. 
And while they may not have wanted to go to Egypt, it was really the only safe place for them where the reach of Herod would not be felt. Sadly, these verses paint a picture of the world Jesus came to save. A world where people who are insecure, afraid, and angry resort to cunning maneuvering and senseless violence. A world where people do evil things because they simply can and have the power and the authority to do so. A world where things simply don't make sense or is extremely unfair, but you have no recourse or remedy. A world where there is disappointment and crying and where people are so hopeless and in despair they cannot be comforted. And just because the Christ was born in Bethlehem and it is celebrated at Christmas doesn't mean that terrible things don't happen on Christmas Day. The world is an evil place because of the sins in the heart of men and women. On Christmas of 2008 in Congo, the LRA rebel group invaded multiple churches, machetes in hand, and 620 citizens were killed in the attacks. And those who survived were subjected to horrible torture, mutilation, and even death. On Christmas of 1929, one of the worst and darkest events in North Carolina history happened when Charlie Lawson cold-heartedly killed six out of his seven children and his wife in very gruesome and sick ways and then killed himself. The only one to survive was the eldest son who wasn't home at the time of the murders. These incidents remind us tragically that the world is a fallen place. And the only words you can use to describe such terrible tragedies are senseless, mindless, and devastating. And it is those same words you would use to describe the massacre of the toddlers and the babies of Bethlehem. It was so senseless just because King Herod was so insecure about a threat to his position that was not even realized. And here in these tragic verses, we can extrapolate another truth, number two. God came in the person of Jesus to save a fallen world where people are sinners and life is unfair. God came in the person of Jesus to save a fallen world where people are sinners and life is unfair. Why do we need to realize this truth? Because sometimes if we don't fully realize how terrible the situation is, then you and I don't fully appreciate the Savior's coming. If everything is going well, and then someone comes and says, I'm here to save you, people will just simply look at that person and perhaps jokingly say, we don't need saving, everything is going well. But if in a hopeless situation, someone comes and says, I've come to save you, you will gladly accept and appreciate His offer of salvation. And so we need to understand, my friends, that this is a fallen sinful world in which we live. A fallen world full of evil people who seek to harm and take advantage. A sinful world where there is much injustice. A fallen world needs a Savior. Sinful people need a Savior. And a Savior is needed to extend grace to remedy unfairness and injustice. This is a world that isn't getting any better. 
And we live in a world that's ready to explode on different fronts. Elizabeth Chang of the Washington Post writes in an article entitled, Americans are living in a big anger incubator, says this, Americans are angry. The country erupted into the worst civil unrest in decades after the death of George Floyd. And anger about police violence and the country's legacy of racism is still running high. At the same time, we're dealing with anger provoked by the coronavirus pandemic. Anger at public officials because they've shut down parts of society. Or anger because they aren't doing enough to curb the virus. Anger about being required to wear a mask. Or anger towards people who refuse to wear a mask. Anger at people and anyone who doesn't see things the right way. We're living, in effect, in a big anger incubator, says Raymond Navaco, a psychologist professor at UC Irvine. According to psychiatrist Joshua Morgenstein, the country is now dealing with three disasters superimposed on top of one another, the pandemic, the economic fallout, and civil unrest. He says, certainly, one way of responding, and a common way of responding, is anger. This very much describes the situation we are in today. Is it true in your life, perhaps? Are you a big anger incubator? Are you angry today? Are you angry at those who are on the other side of the fence, living a better life than you, or perhaps living a different life from you? Are you angry at those who are on the other side of the aisle politically? Are you angry at those who are on the other side of an issue that you hold dear and you disagree with them. And when that anger blows up, you and I know it's ugly and it's vicious. Like you, I'm not perfect. I'm not a very nice person when I get angry and lose my cool. And my children can tell you all about it. Recently, I saw headphones on my daughter's bed in the morning. I was about to reprimand her for why she was using her iPad while she was in bed, so I asked her about it. She told me, Daddy, I wore my headphones last night because I didn't want to listen to you and Mommy fight. I felt very convicted. I asked Jesus to help me control my anger at that moment and to help me control my emotional outbursts. Jesus came into a fallen, troubled world as a babe of Bethlehem to solve our sin problems. He really is the Savior of the world to restore marriages, to mend broken families and relationships, to show us through His grace in our lives that we can accept injustices done to us. And that is the greatness of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And certainly, as the light of the world, He indeed pierces the darkness of this sinful, hopeless world. There is a wonderful Christmas hymn that is not often sung today, but the words capture this biblical truth so well. It is the song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. It's based on a poem written in 1863 by the American poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. It was written on Christmas Day in the midst of the American Civil War. Life was tough for Henry as his wife had recently died and his eldest son was fighting that terrible and devastating American Civil War. And all he desired was for 
peace and good. This poem tells of the narrator's despair and then a great realization upon hearing Christmas bells. The first verse goes like this. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And then in verses 2 to 5, it talks of the war raging around them, which he personally had witnessed. And then verse 6, the despair of the evils of this earth. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. There is very much despair in tone. But then suddenly, a great realization of a wonderful truth, and he writes verse 7, it is proudly proclaimed, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth He sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. I love that line. God is not dead. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail to bring peace on earth and goodwill to men. That is the very hope of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God Himself, when He came to this earth as a babe of Bethlehem to save a world that was fallen, to save sinners like you and me, to extend grace to those who are the victims of injustice so that there can be true peace on earth and goodwill and joy to men. Look at verses 19 to 23. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. And when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. After the death of King Herod, an angel appears again to Joseph, in a dream telling him that it's safe for their family to leave Egypt and return back to the land of Israel after Herod's death. Apparently, the family was planning to return back to Bethlehem. But again, God appeared to Joseph in a dream to tell him that it's not safe to go there because Archelaus, the son of Herod, ruled the area. And history tells us that Archelaus was just as ruthless as his father. And so they instead head to Galilee. And it is in the region of Galilee where we find the city of Nazareth, and they return back to Nazareth. This family had come full circle, for it was from Nazareth where they first set out from their journey because of the taxation census. And now they return to the same town, but this time with the child Jesus. We don't know the time that has elapsed but certainly more than two years since they first left. 
But it was quite the adventure for this family as God moved Jesus and his family around the region in order to protect them. The Scriptures do not reveal why God kept Jesus' family away from Nazareth for so long. But we know from biblical prophecy, as the Gospel writer Matthew keeps on pointing out, that Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem, according to biblical prophecy, to live in Egypt for a period of time, according to biblical prophecy, and then to grow up in the town of Nazareth. As the Bible tells us in verse 23, he shall be called a Nazarene, someone from Nazareth. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament messianic prophecies. The point that Matthew is stressing in these verses is that God's leading is to protect us, to keep us safe, and to give us His best. But that journey He often takes us on as He took Joseph and his family on doesn't look like a straight line, but rather an unexpectedly winding path. The taking of Jesus' family from Nazareth to Bethlehem and then to Egypt and then back to Nazareth is not a natural path. But the stress of the author was on the fulfillment of messianic prophecies. In other words, it was God's plan. It was God's will. And the winding path served a greater purpose, that of protecting Jesus and His family. You see, another truth that is revealed about how God operates is this, number three. God's leading may not make sense, but it is part of His perfect plan to teach us to trust Him. God's leading may not make sense, but it is part of His perfect plan to teach us to trust Him. I love hiking, and I've hiked all over Europe and North America. And one of my first real hikes was up Twin Sisters Peak in Colorado, about 3,500 meters at the summit. Any hiker will tell you that you don't tackle a mountain in one straight line all the way to the top. It will wear you out. You will not be able to make it to the summit. As counterintuitive as it may be, to tackle any mountain climb, you need to zigzag your way up the mountain in what are called switchbacks. It makes the elevation angle less steep and conserves your energy to be able to make the summit. And while the winding path may not always be the most direct route, it's still moving you forward to be able to accomplish your goal. So it is in life. God often uses these winding paths of our lives to teach us important lessons to ensure that we make it to the end and that we finish well instead of trying to charge up and through life and then failing to reach the summit and not finishing well because we've exhausted ourselves in the process, trusting in our own strength and ability and, of course, not learning any great spiritual lessons along the way. As Catherine Shuri correctly puts it, we desire straight paths for our lives. We built straight tracks for trains, straight roads for cars, and pray to God for clear direction and straight paths for our lives. Often we pray for guidance, for discernment, for God to illuminate the straight path. We don't want to take the winding road the detours, the wrong turn. We want the right answer, and we want a clear, straight path. But any path, even one with twists and turns, can be good as long as God is walking with us. That reminds me of Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. You know it well. Proverbs 
chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. I like that part about lean not on your own understanding. It tells us that God's leading often will not make sense. You do not lean on what makes sense to you. You lead on what doesn't make sense if it's God's leadings. And so when things don't make sense, it shouldn't be a surprise to us. Because when we trust in Him, we have to understand and realize it's part of His perfect plan. Leadership consultant Kevin Monroe shared this story about valuing our experiences, even if it's through winding paths. A few years back, he writes, I had facilitated a two-day workshop in Seattle. The workshop had just ended. People had said their goodbyes, and I was packing up before heading out. Just then, I noticed Marcus making his way to the front of the room. He offered to help me pack up. Naturally, I accepted his offer. We chatted as we finished packing. It was one of those conversations that still ring fresh in my ears. Kevin writes, Marcus began, How did you get trained to do what you do? I responded with a bit of nervous laughter. Is that a silly question, he asked, looking somewhat embarrassed. No, no, not at all, Kevin says. It's just that my answer may not be that helpful to you. Why do you ask? Well, Marcus was a bit timid. Kevin writes earlier, I had learned he was a veteran suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome. Well, Marcus said, I want to do what you do. Kevin answers, I'm not sure my answer is what you're looking for, but it is the truth. And my answer is this, nothing and everything. At that moment, Marcus had that deer-in-the-headlight look. Huh? I was hoping you could point me to a program or school to learn to do what you do, he said. I continued, let me explain. Nothing in the sense of receiving formal education or specific training to do what I was doing. However, everything I have ever done in one way or another has equipped and prepared me to do what I do. It clicked. I saw the light begin to shine in his eyes. And I said to him, Marcus, I believe all of your life experiences have prepared and equipped you to do something similar to what I do. You need to believe it and launch out to discover just what that is for you. Marcus smiled. He understood. I like Heaven's answer. Nothing and everything. His point is that oftentimes the skills we learn in life that makes us successful is not necessarily what we learn in school. Yes, school teaches us the basic knowledge we need to know in life, but it is what we experience that teaches us how to cope with life's problems. And if that experience comes with great spiritual learnings of spiritual principles according to the Scriptures, all the better. I'm sure Joseph and his family really learned to trust God's leading through this journey. Remember chapter 1 of Matthew when Joseph was told about Mary's having a virgin birth? He was willing and wanting to leave her. But now Joseph seemingly trusts God's leading without any question or doubts. That comes from experiencing the journey of a winding path that God takes you on. Judson Pauling once shared that 
a man in his 30s described to him how he was agonizing over wanting to follow God in a big way. He wanted to fulfill his life mission, a worthy aspiration to be sure. But what path to choose? He couldn't see that distant road. It certainly wasn't a straight path, and it certainly wasn't straight ahead. So he asked my advice, Judson wrote. How does he follow a path he cannot see? I let him know that although I might not be the best example, I've never seen very far ahead of what's coming or what I'm to do with my life. To live my mission, I pretty much just look at what's next. Most of my choices in life are quite mundane. What I see is a few flat rocks for a foothold in front of me. Simple options, not some grand highway. Perhaps there should be a shift in our mindset about how we look at life. Perhaps instead of looking for that great grand highway where we see 50 years ahead, and that's the only time we will find peace in our life, we have to understand that God takes us through a winding, meandering path so that we can learn great lessons to build our character and to learn to trust Him. And that's exactly how the Lord led Joseph, just one step at a time. God didn't give Joseph the grand picture of what two to three years would look like, but it was piecemeal and broken up so that Joseph would learn to trust. For him to stay in Bethlehem until the wise men came so that they would have enough money to survive in Egypt, and then to go to Egypt. And God says, I will let you know when it's time to leave, and didn't give him a time frame for how long they would be in Egypt. Oh, and then, by the way, now you can leave Egypt, and as you return to Israel, you can't go to the place you normally wanted to go to, which was Bethlehem, but I want you now to go to the region of Galilee instead, and I've put Archelaus, the son of Herod, in charge so that you will return back to Nazareth in fulfillment of biblical prophecy. You see, when there's a winding road, we can't see too far ahead as if it were a straight road. And I believe that is why God takes us on these winding paths so that we can't see too far ahead, so that we don't trust in ourselves, but we will learn to trust Him. I like how John Piper puts it in his book, A Sweet and Bitter Providence. Life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next and then finally to heaven. Life is a winding and troubled road, switchback after switchback. And the point of biblical stories like Joseph and Job and Ruth and Esther is to help us feel in our bones, not just to know in our hearts, that God is for us in these strange turns. God is not just showing up after the troubles and cleaning it up. He's plotting the course and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's why there's an old Portuguese saying, God writes straight with crooked lines. Think about that. God writes straight with crooked lines. Meaning that even though our life may not go according to our plans, God will work with it to achieve the result that is best for us. The Apostle Paul understood this truth well when he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. 
and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. Let me repeat that. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. That is God's purpose and taking us through these winding paths so that as we grow in our trust of Him, we will be able to share Christ with others. And that path has always triumphal meaning that it's always the best for us because it is part of God's perfect plan. With joy and peace in troubled times when we understand and accept this truth. Do we thank God for leading us through winding paths instead of straight paths? And it is in these winding paths that forces us to trust Him and learn lessons for our betterment? I'm certain that Joseph and Mary learned this important lesson as they leaned into God to trust in the winding path He led them on. The coming of Jesus Christ, God Himself, in incarnate or human form, was to reveal God. And in this account of Jesus' early life, we really do see three great revelations about God. That God's protection and provisions often come in unexpected and unconventional ways to reveal His deep love and care for us. That God came in the person of Jesus to save a fallen world where people are sinners and life is unfair. Where God's leading may not make sense, but it is part of His perfect plan to teach us to trust Him. These truths should certainly bring joy and peace in whatever circumstances we are in, even if they are troubling ones. Praise the Lord for the great revelation of who He is and what He does through the Christmas story. May we be blessed, edified, and challenged to live our lives for a Savior who deeply loves and cares for us. And that's why He came to earth, not to live but to die, to be Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that in this unique journey You took Mary, Joseph, and Jesus on, it was to reveal how You operate. It was to reveal the greatness of who You are, to be able to see Your love and care even when we may not fully understand what You're doing, to see why a Savior was so needed in a world that is hopeless, to see that we don't have to understand Your plans but all we have to do is to learn to trust You. And in Your perfect plan, it is a triumphal one for us. Father, these are difficult lessons sometimes to accept and to learn. But I pray, Lord, that in this Christmas season, we will be able to accept and acknowledge and to live out these truths daily so that the world can see the greatness of Jesus through the way we live our life. I pray blessings upon each family this Christmas season. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.